And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm glad you could join us today. I hate to admit it, but I had no idea that hemp wasn't a hallucinogenic drug until the 1990s. But like most people back then, I didn't know enough about it to question the laws and had no reason to care whether it was legal or not. That changed dramatically for me in 2010. I was actually an environmental journalist researching an article about the impacts of industrial agriculture when I stumbled upon a white paper comparing hemp with BT cotton and GMO corn. It was surprising to learn that hemp thrives with less water and fewer petrochemicals and yields more valuable biomass per acre since every inch of the hemp plant can be processed for thousands of applications. I was so fascinated by the study that I decided to scrap the original article that I was working on and instead write about what would become my first article on hemp. Since verifiable information was limited online, I wound up ordering some books and, to my surprise, found much of the source material I needed in The Emperor Wears No Clothes by the notorious hemp activist Jack Herrer. In meticulous detail, he chronicled the history of cannabis, punctuating all of his claims with exhaustive footnotes and copies of public records. He also exposed the sinister motives behind the 1930s campaign to demonize marijuana and Nixon's plot to imprison millions of left-leaning voters when the Controlled Substances Act became law. Ironically, Herrer himself was incarcerated at the time he wrote that book, which, by the way, was named after the classic Grimm Brothers fable about gullible citizens who fall for a great deception. As a conservative-leaning veteran who considered himself a patriotic defender of freedom, Herrer considered the egregious lies and injustice of prohibition a betrayal that called for protest. Despite being arrested for civil disobedience no fewer than 34 times, It never stopped him from advocating for what he believed to be a harmless, healing plant with potential to solve most of the world's most consequential environmental, social, and economic problems. He wrote, If people could be educated to see through these lies, hemp could be rescued from obscurity and save the world because it would stop pine forests from being harvested for paper and the Earth's fossil fuels from being refined into filthy gasoline. He had me convinced. After reading the book, I could hardly wait to contact the author for a quote. Sadly, I was too late. Jack Herrer passed away on April 15, 2010, just one week before my publishing deadline. While I never got that interview, I will always be grateful to him for sparking a passion that would change my life, really, and eventually it led to the launch of The Cannabis Reporter. The incredible sacrifices he made to educate the public about the injustice of prohibition galvanized a movement that would ultimately change the course of history and open doors for advocacy that generations of advocates have walked through. That's the topic of today's show, and I couldn't be more grateful that Jack Herrer's son is here to discuss it with me. 
Dan Herrer grew up watching his father's activism, but it wasn't until his father's death that he decided to enter the business. He's the founder of the Jack Herrer Foundation and Herrer Group, where he's conducting research, developing products, and producing cannabis. Dan, thank you so much for being here. It means a lot to me. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Herrer like terror. It seems everyone in this industry has a unique pronunciation of your last name because it's so iconic, as you know. <laughs> it's so, iconically wrong most of the time. Most but. of the time. <laughs> ah, I tell you what, this is such a legacy for everyone in the industry. That name is synonymous with hemp. It's also become synonymous with cannabis. And I can only imagine that growing up with that kind of notoriety and legacy attached to your name must draw a lot of questions when you're just out and about. Am I getting that right? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't see that um, as often as people would think. Um, I, I, I live a pretty quiet life these days, but growing up with, uh, with my father was always interesting. And the notoriety wasn't really uh, mine. It was his. Uh, so it, it's, it's really a different perspective for me. Uh, it never was um, like you would imagine a family that's like in Hollywood in the movies where the kids are uh, looked at similarly to their, to their parents. Uh, for me, it was, uh, it was a fairly uh, normal, but, uh, it was normal for me, but different for most. But right. I, I never really was exposed to uh, people with, um, you know, over-exuberant uh, adulation for the fact that Jack was my father. Well, you know, at the time that he was still alive, not too many people were fans of cannabis or hemp because most people didn't really know much about it. So I hear what you're saying, and I can understand why that would be the case. But of course, you know, fast forward many years later, and those who've been interested in this topic for a long time really do know about your father. So the, in a way, there's like no getting around it. But I know that in your mm -hmm. own right, too, and I grew up with a lot of people who were in that sort of Hollywood set who had famous parents and grandparents and uncles. And for them, it was difficult to make their own name for themselves because of their legacy and the name associated with their famous family members. So I know that that would have to be a bit difficult from, you know, on, on any level to really get out there and try to make a name for yourself. But what I find really interesting is that you are indeed kind of following in the footsteps of that family name, that family legacy with what you're doing right now. Tell me a little bit about that because you've got the agricultural side of your business, you've got the product side of your business, and you also have sort of a research arm as well. So tell me what inspired you aside from the obvious, your father, but tell me what did it for you to make you actually go into this business? Well, oddly enough, I grew up with the education of hemp and cannabis around me. So it was always a draw for me in my youth. It was sometimes embarrassing because my father was so outspoken and talking about things that, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, my father was, you know, he was my crazy dad. 
but the things that he taught me always stuck with me. And as I grew up uh, and we started going to uh, Venice Beach to start educating uh, tourists and locals at the boardwalk there, it became uh, more normal to converse with folks about the history of hemp and cannabis. And it's something that I, I really enjoyed and we enjoyed as a, I want to say as a family, but it was, was never really felt like family. It always felt like a, a job or a purpose or a mission uh, more than it was like, oh, father, son, or father, daughter, uh, depending on which sibling was around at the time. And then as we all got older, we all sort of broke off into our different uh, directions and things that we wanted to do for ourselves. And uh, for me in the 1990s, uh, that was going out and building my own company and meeting my wife and getting married and deciding that I wanted to be my father's son rather than uh, working with my father. So I got to enjoy the next 20 years um, the best 20 years, I would say, of my father's and my relationship. And then when he passed away in 2010, it all seemed to change for me because everything that brought him and I closer made me appreciate all the things that I learned and and saw during uh, the time that I was just a voyeur of what was happening around him through the 90s and through the 2000s. And I really appreciated the voice that he had and the influence that he had within the space. And as I started thinking about how do I deal with the emotion of losing my father and at the same time, knowing that there was still a lot of work that needed to be done that he wasn't going to be part of. And I really didn't know how to address it. So I went back to the basics for myself and I started what I believed to be something useful, which was uh, the Jack Herrer Foundation, and I was looking to go out and educate people the way that I was taught. And different doors opened for me and my family since that time, and it's just become, <laughs> I don't know how to say it, it's a purpose again, you know, mm-hmm. something that was part of who I was growing up that I reconnected with, and it's brought me back into the cannabis industry, into the hemp industry in ways that I would never have imagined for myself. That makes complete sense to me because I recently lost my father and I there are certain things that I can do or say that remember him in a way that I think that he would have been proud. And no doubt what you're doing now is something that would likely make your father very proud I believe that the cannabis movement, and particularly hemp, which is where his advocacy originated, I believe that it's one of the most important movements of our lifetime. And I truly believe, as he obviously did, if anybody's ever read his books, that legalizing hemp and eventually also legalizing cannabis is it's bound to create opportunity for us to reverse some of the damage that's been done and with the fossil fuels that ultimately replaced hemp in industry and in just daily life. 
and it's also bound to reverse some of the problems that have been caused by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, as much as we need some pharmaceuticals for diseases that the cannabis plant is not equipped to deal with, our bodies are receptive to cannabis in ways that our bodies are not receptive to synthetic pharmaceutical drugs. I think that the movement itself is so important, and the reason that we're even here right now is because of the early pioneers, which your father is. So doing what you're doing now, obviously, it, it just seems like it must be making you feel closer to the legacy that he intended. Am I on the right track there? <laughs> you know, I don't look at it as the legacy that he intended. It, it was more, It's more just the road that he was on. You know, but in all reality, the, the things that brought my father into cannabis and hemp, when it started for him, he, he didn't have any understanding of hemp or cannabis up until his early 30s because he had never experienced it uh, in the beginning of his life up until he was 30. And it was somebody trying to tell him that cannabis or back in the day it was pot or marijuana was not the evil that he had always been taught to understand. It wasn't the reefer madness. It wasn't the drug that would make you go crazy or kill people or be, become violent. And um, there was a, a girl that he had met after he and my mother divorced that said, Jack, you really just don't understand this. And this was at a time in his life that he thought all you know, hippies and counterculturists should be taken out and summarily shot. His views were incredibly harsh. And, and it wasn't because he was so right-wing or so left. It's because he was just so ignorant about what cannabis was. He had no understanding of its history because it had been removed from our history. And it started with him getting high for the first time and realizing that if he had this incredible experience after becoming stoned for the first time, that he was you know, hearing music like he had never heard before, tasting foods that were never as good or, or delicious, uh, or the experience of being with a, another person, in this case, this woman, that these experiences changed his life and his views. And he realized that if this plant was this amazing, why was it so demonized? And he was incredibly upset and he felt that this government that he had gone to war for back in Korea, he felt that the United States was an absolutely pure country and that they would never lie and they would never cheat and they always would stand up for what's right. And when he found out that this was all a lie, he felt betrayed. And he started learning about cannabis and he started trying to find out what the history was and, and why it was removed from history. and. These are the things that started him down the path of trying to educate and tell the story to those around him. And uh, eventually that led to the book that he had written called The Emperor Wears No Clothes, which outlined the history of cannabis, not only in this country, but around the world and how it affected how we developed as humanity. And this is what really started him on a path of advocating that this plant was so important that you needed to embrace the whole thing. But he realized that hemp 
was the one that has an opportunity to change how we lived on this planet. Right. So it's like the unifier in a way. Yes. Because it's one thing that people could agree upon if they were anti-drug or, you know, afraid of the societal implications of legalizing something that could actually alter your mind. Yes. It was just interesting. And in his writings it was really clear that that is why hemp became his mission at first. Yeah. But I didn't realize that he was actually a veteran of the Korean war. So I don't yeah, know why he I was a military police and, um, you know, he had a great intellect, even though he had never graduated college. He, he really just absorbed the things that he read and the things that he heard. Uh, so, you know, learning to speak Korean or uh, educating himself to become uh, a hemp uh, or cannabis scholar um, was very easy for him. It was easy to, you know, to recall most everything that he ever read or heard. And that made him an, an incredible speaker and, and very powerful uh, to listen to because he was able to draw you in and help you to see a different view rather than be stuck in, in, in the belief that everything that you've heard from this government and uh, writings that were based in falsehoods. He felt that if he was able to uncover the truth, that hemp and cannabis would be legal the next week or the next month or the next year. And he felt very strongly that all he had to do was expose the truth and this incredibly divisive and destructive war on cannabis and hemp uh, would be over. But his realization that hemp had all of the properties that would be necessary in order to change how we lived, to change how we made things, to change how we developed new industries and with what products. And, you know, he realized that hemp was going to be a far greater asset to humanity than just um, the access to legal cannabis. And a lot of the legal cannabis aspects, when it comes to uh, medically uh, necessary consumption of it, wasn't really known in the 70s and the 80s the way it is now. Mm -hmm. And hemp always stood out as something that was powerful, that it could appeal to a great deal of people without the threat of the euphoria of the cannabis. Mm-hmm. What I think is particularly interesting, too, is that I found when people learn about the incredible benefits of hemp and its cousin marijuana, from the environmental to the scientific and medical side of things, I think a lot of people kind of have that same reaction. It's like, well, really? So why has it been illegal? And then there is that sense of betrayal. I know that for me was huge because I've always been such an advocate for environmental causes and knowing what I know about the science of climate change, I'm petrified that people aren't listening. So when you see something like this that has the potential to help us reverse that trend toward climate change, it's an ongoing betrayal that the powers that can make the decision to release hemp from the confines of Schedule 1 would refuse that over all this time. And I'm actually really encouraged that we finally have a little bit of action in Washington 
to make hemp legal again. But I still think we have a long way to go before everybody in the country really understands the importance of it in terms of reversing all of the damage that we are currently doing with the fossil fuels. So that's true. And, and, you know, the reality with hemp is that when you start understanding what hemp is, what it can be, what it has been, even with regards to the development of this country, um, hemp played a powerful role in creating the United States. And during the, the industrial revolution as, and I hate to say the uh, slavery, but as the cotton gin became a very useful tool to harvest and process cotton, there was no form of that for hemp, not up until 1914. So previously, it was the most labor-intensive crop to grow. So in the late 1800s, after the Civil War, there was uh, a, a need for labor that wasn't available anymore because of the scourge of slavery. And once they were able to look at harvesting and processing hemp again in the early 1900s with the uh, development of the decorticator, once the decorticator was invented in 1914, the availability and the viability of the use of hemp was really gaining in the early 1900s. And it would have been the most destructive technology ever used in the creation of new businesses. The problem was that there was a great foundation already built on the beginnings of petroleum and synthetic materials that would have been threatened by the, by the use and proliferation of hemp once again in this country. And you know, industry was incredibly powerful back then as it is now, but back then even more so because so few people had control over how America was being built in the early 1900s in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s. There was, there was very few people and the power was so uh, centralized within just a few people that the, if, if hemp were developed the way that it could be, those businesses uh, would have suffered huge financial losses in comparison if they did switch to hemp. So it was much easier to outlaw it. And uh, that's what they did in 1937. And they, they were able to eliminate this plant that would have really changed fundamentally how we live and exist today. But thankfully, we're starting to become more aware of the things that we can do. And because of people like my father and Gatewood Galbraith and others throughout the United States who wanted to re-embrace this plant for architecture, uh, agricultural and industrial building, uh, they really had a solid view of what could happen and how we could utilize this plant to its full utility to change climate, to change the financial situations of farmlands that were becoming depressed after tobacco started suffering huge losses due to the way that it poisons uh, people around the world. And as the use of tobacco shrank, plant had the ability to lift these communities up and, and these communities now are 
you know, they're grasping onto the possibilities now of what industrial hemp can be, not just from the CBD side, you know, which is, seems to be all the rage right now, but the industrial side of it and, and the applications for it and the new technologies that are being created because we have other technologies that will help this, this plant become incredibly useful in every aspect of our lives that have nothing whatsoever to do with euphoria, but have everything to do with not just how we live on this planet, not just how we survive the future, but how we are going to be able to thrive within it. And it's really uplifting for myself to see these things that come to pass where, you know, 30 years ago, I thought my father was absolutely out of his mind because it was just theory back then. And now it's becoming reality. It's a wonderful place to be right now, watching the things happen. And on the, on the flip side, it's also horrifying to see governments still using fear and deception to slow down the growth and application of this plant because they haven't figured out a way to control it yet. Yeah. And government and big business, they're very much in the business of controlling how you feel, how you, whether you feel safe or whether you feel threatened or whether you feel successful or whether you feel suppressed. And this plant has the ability to reach into communities and lift those communities up from these issues. You know, it can put farmers back to work and pay for mortgages and pay for homes and colleges and still allow them to make money and, and donate to their churches or their synagogue or their, you know, their local schools. It has the ability to change communities and people are recognizing that all around the United States, but they still don't understand why. They still don't understand, you know, why was this plant made illegal if it was so useful? The only thing that I can come up with from what I've learned in my life is that when you have something that changes somebody else's life, there are going to be people that will do everything they can to stop that from happening if it changes their life uh, in a way, or in this case, their you know, their finances moving forward. So major corporations have fought and fought and fought against this with every act of deliberate vengeance that they could. But people have literally figured it out. I think that people are just generally afraid of change, but I don't think they would be as afraid of change if there weren't incredibly well-endowed, powerful forces who were still feeding the fear, feeding the lies. And I mean, we see it all the time these days, especially it's like, you know, the truth is no longer the truth. So you've got people questioning what is real. And when you get back to like, say, climate change, there's still people out there who are being told and believe that climate change is a hoax. And yet, I don't know if you saw the report that came out just a couple of days ago from the United Nations about the dire urgency of eliminating carbon emissions and fossil fuels if we don't want to reach that tipping point. And, you know, people think that that's such a hype, but it's not. It's actually true. And when 99% of the scientists in the world all concur that this is an urgent situation. 
people still don't believe it. And so it is a matter of that education. It is a matter of taking this message out to people and making them understand a hemp economy is going to put money in people's pockets. It's going to change our communities. It's going to reform our criminal justice system. It's going to improve our health in general. It's going to put farmers back to work. And it's going to be a carbon negative industry all around. All of which are dangerous to existing protocols within government and business. Right. But that's only benefiting a handful of people. And they don't that's care. the problem. I know. But they're the ones with the money to put out the false advertising about it. Well, I mean, and, and that's what's happening on the cannabis side, too. When you talk about fear, you know, right now across this country, people think that there's legal cannabis. I'm one of those folks that don't think that there's legal cannabis. Right now, we have paid access to cannabis. It is not free. We can't give it away free for the most part. Those who are sick who can't grow it for themselves cannot get free medicine given to them because it's against the law. And the state governments right now, which are controlling the paid access to cannabis, are structuring the laws how we have access to cannabis. The way that legal cannabis is structured currently is this. We have cannabis control boards. You know, they set the requirements. They set all the testing needs of the state. Not that legal cannabis or cannabis that goes to the public uh, shouldn't be tested, but all of the requirements that are part of the cannabis structure right now are all based on the lies and deceptions. You know, the fear that is still created by telling people that there has to be cannabis control boards that govern what's going on within the cannabis space and that there's all these bureaucracies that need to be created because they want the folks within these states to feel safe because now there's this narcotic sold in stores. But the reality is that the foundation for all of the active measures that the states use in order to control cannabis are all based on the lies that have already been disproven over years of documentation and study. You know, we know that cannabis doesn't cause cancer. In fact, it may even help to treat cancer. We know that hemp, when it is distilled and put into a product that could be a sublingual, could be helpful uh, medicinally for uh, multiple uh, different ailments. And all of these things are still under this guise of Schedule 1 or, or to be Schedule 2 or do we deschedule at all? And there's this great push to keep control of this plant, even though scientific information that we have points to the opposite. It's a helpful plant. It's not a dangerous plant. It doesn't hurt humans. It actually helps humans. We have in our bodies what's called an endocannabinoid system, which is activated when cannabinoids, generally from cannabis, are used in the body and that there's no real harm. There is only benefit. Now, are there side effects? Yeah. Side effects could, be, could make you happy. It can make you sleepy, can make you hungry, you know, but these are side effects generally 
that will not be detrimental to the human body. And everything else that we use that you brought up, you know, pharmaceuticals earlier, when we're talking about pharmaceuticals, we're talking about things that you can take a pharmaceutical for one ailment, but it may cause adverse side effects that could even be dangerous, if, if not deadly. Right. That also require additional drugs that also have side effects that require additional drugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an endless cycle. Yeah. So, so when you talk about cannabis or hemp and utilized within that space of medically uh, useful, it's incredibly destructive to the pharmaceutical industry, which is why Big Pharma is trying so hard right now to capture as much as they can of the new industry that is being built off of the ingenuity, the sheer determination of a community. In this, in this case, it's, it's almost a global community now that's embracing cannabis and hemp and forcing governments to really look at reintroducing hemp and cannabis into all societies for a better way to live. But the only way that they can do that is that they can control it. And the only way that they control it is that they continue to use lies and fear in order to create the structure and the parameters for which we have access. And these are the things that are detrimental to how businesses that are literally growing around the United States operate. Because if you tax them at anywhere from 30 to 50, it's 60%, you're really hindering those companies' abilities to make a, a, a real profit so they can turn it into more education so they can really reach out to communities and, and help eliminate the fear that has been caused by 80 years of these destructive, deceptive lies. And it really doesn't matter whether it's on the hemp side or the, the cannabis side, they still use the same lies and tactics in order to control who and how and how much is grown and used and how it's transported and how it's made into products or if it can be made into products. And it's really, um, it's really sad. It's, it's criminal. Well, it, it is criminal because at this point, there's so much information out there that is absolutely opposite to the position of most industry and certainly the U.S. government, that when, when you have this information, if you know that something is healthy, if you know that something is beneficial, you know that something can, can change uh, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the soil that we grow in, if, if there's something that can change this beneficially and you ignore it in order to protect somebody else's money or profit, even if those products that those companies make are hazardous, dangerous, deadly, and you choose to be ignorant, and, you know, and it's this willful ignorance that is criminal. It's okay to do that if you're on the big business side because you have shareholders and you have prisons to pay for and you have all of these things that the war on drugs has created, but now the war on truth is, is working towards setting this free. Yeah. My father, when he wrote the book, thought that once he exposed the truth, the war on drugs would be over. That was 40 years ago. Yeah. Now that things are moving so fast, most people think, oh, well, cannabis is going to be legal 
next year. Mm -mm. I still don't see that as a possibility. Well, and if it is legal, there are still going to be those controls in place that will keep it competitively priced with pharmaceuticals, which is another thing that I think is criminal. But yeah, and actually, you were kinder about it than I have been in the way I talk about it. I mean, you say it's willful ignorance. I think it's willful deception. And, you know, while there are some people who are willfully ignorant because they just refuse to learn, there are people who have learned and they know better and they really, truly understand. I mentioned this once before on the show that this interview with John Ehrlichman, who said in no uncertain terms did Nixon fully understand that cannabis was completely harmless. They knew that it didn't belong in Schedule 1. And they even commissioned reports that disputed the fact that it should be even considered with the controlled substances to begin with. The AMA was fighting it. I mean, there were a lot of people fighting putting it into the scheduling at all. And they knew it. And it was a willful deception that was designed out of political ambition. And that is criminal. And it's even more criminal that now that the cat is out of the bag, I mean, you cannot unlearn the knowledge that the majority of the country is beginning to learn, which is that cannabis is harmless. In fact, I, I just have to mention this because it was something that stuck in my head so much. Your father said on a documentary one time that no one ever died from marijuana unless they had been shot by a cop. And that sounds like something he would have said. Yeah, it's exactly what he said. And and I could sense the anger in him when he was saying that, too, you know, that it just it feels so unjust that we've been victimized by these laws. And one of the things that keeps me going and one of the reasons that I got into this when I started learning about this, the fact that there are so many people who died at the hands of pharmaceuticals. And still to this day, there are so many people who are needlessly dying because they've been overprescribed opiates and other commonly prescribed drugs that induce thoughts of suicide. So you've got a lot of people dying from overdose and suicide needlessly because cannabis could have actually helped them in a way that wasn't going to throw them into that downward spiral of addiction and suicide. So well, thankfully that's that's changing. I, I think it's changing the too. The perception of that is changing. Absolutely. Well in the public eye the perception of it is changing. But unfortunately we still have big business in the pockets of people who are actually making the laws. So I think that one of the most important things that we as society can do aside from legalizing cannabis is to end campaign finance as we know it. I think Citizens United was the beginning of the end of so many possibilities and the freedom that we once enjoyed as a society and the representation that was intended through our Constitution with political representatives who should be representing their constituents as opposed to making rules that satisfy their campaign donors. 
And it's a fundamental change that we as a country are going to need to embrace at some point. And we're going to have to stop believing a lot of these lies that we are being told. And now is one of those great times for a lot of self-reflection, I think, because it's really easy to stick your head in the sand when you don't want to hear something that's being said by people who don't share your beliefs. It's not only that they don't share your beliefs, they don't share your vision of what you hope will happen. And I think that hope is one of those things that can work against you. If you have a hope that something is going to happen the way you're being told it will, and it doesn't, you don't want to understand that the hope you put into, say, one person who is telling you that such and such was going to happen, you don't want to learn that that is a lie because that winds up diminishing hope in general. <laughs> it's just, I'm getting really esoteric here and I don't mean to, but you've kind of led me down this path with what you were saying. And I think that it absolutely makes sense. And I think that we are due for a fundamental change. And I really recommend that anybody that's still on the fence about cannabis, go back and, and read some of the writings of Jack Herrer and also there are a lot of other really important pioneers out there who also have written about their views on why we are where we are with cannabis. And now the science is backing up all of these things that were being told to us in the 70s by these rare and very courageous advocates who spent time in prison and risking their own reputations and their own careers. And stepping out to try to correct an injustice. Who was I talking to recently? He was actually a judge who was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2012. And he actually came out and said that cannabis prohibition is one of the most egregious miscarriages of justice in his lifetime. And I thought that was really interesting coming from a man who had a public reputation to protect, but not only that, he was a judge. He saw the legal system uh, work, and he, he saw how, how industry in the legal system destroyed and, and mandated this, the destroying of lives. You know, and one of the things that the government is not going to do is they're not going to just come out and say, oh, we were wrong, I'm sorry, you know, Marijuana is not this dangerous thing. Um, our bad. Um, they're not going to ever come out and and say that. They're going to go down the slowest path they can, so they can continue to rewrite their their own history, and and finally come to the realization that that cannabis isn't this evil that they've always brought it up to be. But they have to do it in a way that doesn't change the fundamentals of how justice works. Right now, we, we, we have legalization or acts, paid access. You know, we have access to cannabis, but we still have laws that possibly can put us in jail for cannabis, you know? And this is, this is a crazy thing. You know, there, there are microbreweries brewing beer in, in their garages, in their homes, in warehouses. And they are not scrutinized the way that somebody would want to grow cannabis at their house or in, uh, in a warehouse. You know, it's treated incredibly different. You know, 
microbrews are ending up on store shelves and micro grows are ending up in uh, court because they don't conform to the legalization aspects of what the states are uh, allowing. Yeah. The, the, the excessive taxation within, within the cannabis space right now, when, when the federal government starts, stops giving money to states for war on drugs, the states need to find that revenue from somewhere else. In this case, they feel that if they're taxing cannabis at this exorbitant rate, that they can sort of offset the losses that the federal government is shorting them and replenishing those funds with this plant. And they they do it under the, the guise of keeping the community safe when the reality is they need to keep the court clerks you know, employed. They need to keep the bailiffs uh, on the job. They need to have the court reporters and the judges and the folks that work at the prisons, you know, the, the guard, the cooks. Oh, that's a huge business. The, this, these are things that need to be subsidized by currency. And the currency right now is cannabis currency, which is subsidizing these things. Yeah. And it's going to take a long time for the states to wean themselves off of 40 and 50 and 60% tax. You know, when, when cannabis is finally or hemp is finally uh, taxed at a normal business rate and we're able to operate and be able to, uh, you know, deduct expenses and, you know, deduct um, um, rents and all of these things as a normal business would, um, it's, it's going to change how the states are going to, you know, uh, hopefully stop incarceration uh, because it's no longer going to be funded. Um, by this business that has uh, funded the war on drugs and the incarceration of of citizens uh, in this country and around the world for you know the 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 last forty years particularly and and I'm hoping that sometime in the in the near future we get past the lies and the ignorance and deception and get into building real economies and real communities. Uh, based on based on truths and and realities, and and the hope that that hemp and cannabis could truly change how we live on this planet and how we treat one another as humans. And, yeah. and that's one of my that's one of my you know the things that I wake up every every day and and hope that we're all working toward. And sometimes it feels like we're going backwards, but most of the time I feel very encouraged that. So many things are changing, um, except for what the government is spreading. Right. Well, well, the government and very powerful lobby groups. <laughs> but I think that you're right. I think it is moving forward, although sometimes it's really difficult to see that, especially when there are setbacks. Like when California opened its doors to legalization, all of a sudden it just felt like the whole floodgate was going to open and... And it was going to be, you know, this huge land of opportunity. And then we get thrown a monkey wrench because of a, a reversal in the Ninth Circuit about CBD being issued a numerical code in Schedule 1. And all of a sudden they're saying, oh, well, you can't put CBD in food products. I mean, that's that's changing now. I mean, there have been enough amicus briefs to blow the roof off of the Ninth Circuit and get them to sort of wake up to this. And I think with the farm bill... If that passes in the Congress, 
with the hemp provision in it this year. And then, I mean, there are a lot of things cooking right now that are just going to undermine that decision by the Ninth Circuit, which is what, by the way, made hemp legal in the United States to begin with in 2004. But that's a whole other conversation. But there's so much insanity around it. Oh, and back to what you were saying about the microbreweries, they still have to be licensed. They can't just brew beer in their garages and sell it to the general public. There's still a control on it. But their their taxation and what governs them is wholly different oh, than yeah. what happens within cannabis. Right now in cannabis, the the fear is, or the projected fear from the government is that everything that happens within the cannabis space has to be watched. And they don't have to put us necessarily in prison anymore because we have video cameras at our doors. We have video cameras uh, in our cars. If you have a delivery service, it has to have a tracking system. It has to have a video system on, on the doors that exit the product from the vehicle. It needs to be tracked from the time it leaves a warehouse to the time it leaves a delivery or the time it gets to a delivery. You know, as, as customers go in, they are electronically let in and sometimes electronically let out. As, as the, 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 the employees of those businesses, the moment that they walk into a facility um, and go through each door in that facility, generally, it is key-coded. You know, it's electronic lock-in, electronic lock-out. And if, you know, it, it, it literally is we are putting ourselves and paying for ourselves to be under our own house arrest. Yeah, I agree. You know, they don't have to incarcerate us anymore because they're watching us every step of the way. There, there's no room uh, for any, there's no room for any freedom within this space. It is all absolutely controlled. And, and this is absurd. Uh, I, I, I don't think that, the, that this is part of, of, of what, uh, a microbrewery we would go through. Oh, absolutely. You're right. And, you know, I'd love to have uh, a drink and watch a football game with my friends. You know, I understand, you know, what attracts me to alcohol, but I don't drink to excess. And the fact that this beer or gin or vodka or uh, whatever it is that you choose to drink is not held to the same standards as as what they're imposing on cannabis, uh, it, it's it, and and not even that it should be, you know. But but on the cannabis side, it's so overbearing and it's so over the top, and and it's all all of the security is still all based on lies that have already been disproven. But in order to make communities feel safer, if the state of California or a city can say, well, we're allowing cannabis sales in this city. But we're watching everything that they do. So these drug dealers will not be able to affect the community in any uh, adverse way. And it is just patently a false narrative to pin on the cannabis industry because we are one of the most loving industries. You know, we care about our communities. We care about the environment. You know, we care about what we put in our bodies. We care about how we're able to help somebody that, that cannot help themselves. We care enough to be able to grow something that could be medically beneficial to somebody uh, that cannot help themselves. And that pharmaceuticals can't help. And yet we're, pro we're prohibited 
from giving that medicine away from free. Jerry Brown just signed a, a bill saying that, you know, a, a needy patient cannot be given cannabis. And that's absurd. You know, so they would have to buy it. And this is just, this is a horrible precedent to set, you know, because if, if, if you tell somebody that the only medicine that they can get is something that they have to purchase, I think that that goes against humanity. Well, and also it goes against that notion that we are a free country, a land of opportunity. <laughs> it really is absurd. That was a good word that you used. It's definitely absurd. And the point that I was making, though, with the microbreweries is the fact that it doesn't matter, even a legal substance like that, the government is still interested in imposing restrictions that would prevent, you know, larger co corporations from being threatened. You know, there is so much to it that goes back to campaign finance. And I'm really hoping that people will actually go and do their homework. If First of all, let me say that once this message reaches mainstream and everybody is aware of it, the government control, I think, that the powers that be will have no choice but to know and understand that the public is watching them. And once people realize the absurdity of these laws of tracking I wish they would do that in the pharmaceutical industry, quite frankly, because I think that this whole opiate epidemic is a money-making scheme by, you know, whoever's manufacturing these drugs. As long as they, you know, keep it out there, people are going to need them, especially the opiates, because they're so highly addictive. And it's a money-making machine, as is the private prison industry. And those are two of the biggest lobbies against cannabis regulation. No argument from me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think as people hear conversations like this and the topic becomes sort of second nature, I think that there will be less likelihood that the laws imposing these serious restrictions on the cannabis industry, there's no doubt that those are going to have to go away and at least be reformed to reason. And at least I'm hoping so. We've got an election coming up, and I hope that people feel energized enough to go and vote. And if they feel as strongly as we do, that prohibition is really a crime against humanity in so many ways, they need to go and look up. We're going to have friends or foes lists on our website, and it has nothing to do with whether they're Democratic or Republican. If they vote in favor of unrestricted cannabis reform so that at least it's as free as the alcohol industry, then you know we'll put them on our friends list. And if they don't, um, and if they are taking money from the big pharma and the big alcohol and the private prison industry, they go on our foes list. And so people have the opportunity to go and vote for the people that will help to push legislation through to remove cannabis from the schedules, not even just reschedule it, but remove it altogether so that we can open up the doors for patients who can't be helped by pharmaceuticals to get access no matter how much money they make. And it doesn't have to be subsidized. You know, these are the things that we really need to work toward. And I think that that's what we are doing. And I hope that more people jump on the bandwagon and do what we're doing. And tell me a little bit about what the foundation is doing. Well, I mean, right right now, 
Uh, honestly, I'm I'm not doing enough with the foundation. Uh, I'm I've really been busy trying to um, build my cannabis company with my partner, so I can fund the foundation uh, better than uh, it's been in the last couple of years. Because uh, for so many years, uh, even within the cannabis industry, it's been tough to get donations. Uh, so the the one of the things that I decided was. If I couldn't get businesses to donate, that I would have to create a business so I could donate to the foundation myself. Right. But it's an it's an educational foundation built on the same principles that I grew up with my whole life, and I think it's key to changing how we move forward because we can continue to stand up in our communities and try to push the door in with regards to access to cannabis, but when we're continuously met with ignorance on the other side of the table, every time that we go to a city council meeting, every time that we go to a state legislator, every time we, we go to the city and say, this is what we'd like to do within the city. And we keep coming up against uh, those who are uneducated because they, they've either chosen not to learn or not to listen or not to read. The real thing that the foundation would do is go into communities Educate the community, and that community elects an official that represents their constituents in that community. And now that representative goes to the state, or local, or city, or federal level with legislation. Now that person represents their constituents based on real education and what their constituents want. And if we are able to elect officials that have an understanding of cannabis and hemp, its history and its importance, then we have the ability to create smarter laws, better laws that are based in fact and not fiction. And by doing that, uh, it may take a little bit more time, but it would be far less destructive to the communities that are trying to build these businesses than having to go through years or possibly decades of overtaxation because of the level of fear and deception that's used in the foundation and the structures of laws that continue to govern us. And that's really the, the fundamental basis of the foundation. Well, definitely a worthy cause. And with that, I would just urge people to make sure that they do vote. If people don't go to the polls on election day, we suffer the consequences. So it's so important for everyone to be educated so that if they can't educate their lawmakers, they can bring in new lawmakers who will be willing to listen. Absolutely. Oh, it is time for us to start wrapping it up. Any last thoughts? No, actually, I just really wanted to say thank you for, uh, for reaching out and allowing me to come on your show. It's been a great pleasure and anything that helps educate the public and sometimes uh, re-educate me is always a positive thing. And uh, I appreciate being on your show. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you were able to come on and I'm uh, grateful to your father too. And I hope he's in heaven smiling on all of us right now for the work that you're doing. And I see a very bright future. So thank you again, Dan. As do I. Thank you so much. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I would like to personally thank my guest, Dan Herrer, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his bio along with information and links to his websites. We have so many people to thank. 
First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech and Healthterra. We certainly couldn't do this without you. I'd also like to thank our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show, and many thanks go out to our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join us again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.